Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. As I'm sure you all know, Matt is one of my biggest cheerleaders on the street. Well, no, no, every prime minister needs one. An influential commentator who can lend a sympathetic ear and give a voice to your cause. Matt Lillard. Sorry to report that the delusion in number 10 is even worse than we thought. That was the Prime Minister at last week's Westminster Correspondents' Dinner. This is the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. As suspected, last week's episode divided the audience, especially on the merits of children's films in general, and Black Panther in particular. Benbow12 writes on iTunes, Love the podcast, but do we have to have David Aronovich moaning about the cost of sash windows and trying to impose his cultural tastes on people? Well, no, not this week we don't. Instead, I'm joined by Times columnist Rachel Sylvester, who says the left is eating itself. Comedian Matt Ford has fallen out of love with PMQs. But first, we lift the Brexit embargo on the podcast to be joined by Times political correspondent Henry Zeffman, who will tell us what we really need to know and what we don't. This is still in the world of cakeism, a diplomatic source told The Times after Theresa May's big Brexit speech last Friday. But forget stale culinary metaphors, the Prime Minister did something important at Mansion House. She accepted for the first time that her red lines of pulling the UK out of the single market and out of the customs union will result in reduced cooperation, whatever deal is agreed. Honesty or otherwise, the question is whether enough of her party will be happy with that come the end of the year. There's always a slight suspicion when the Prime Minister is speaking that we're not learning anything new, but this was a genuinely new development in the... the government's thinking about Brexit, this admission that when David Davis said we were going to enjoy all the benefits that we had before, that might not necessarily be what you might call true. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to go too far and suggest that the whole speech was a, a, a cornucopia of, of new revelations from Theresa May. And this is this is one nugget in a speech which, I mean, the opening passage of the speech, she basically recapped the first speech she ever gave as Prime Minister. But, but yes, uh, this particular element uh, was Theresa May's attempt to Firstly, be frank with the Conservative Party. Secondly, be frank with the country. But I think most importantly, be seen by Europe to be being frank and being reasonable about what Brexit means. Now, the complication with all of this is that we all know that Theresa May knows that Brexit in any form will result in less cooperation, particularly less economic 
cooperation with the EU because she supported Remain uh, in the EU referendum. And that was one of the reasons that she gave um, for that. But this was her attempt to basically uh, move the debate on. She said to the EU, uh, we can't have all the obligations but none of the rights, which was her way of saying to the EU, you can't expect us to behave as if things are the same. But also saying to the UK, we can't behave as if things are going to be the same. We are going to have more limited access, but we're going to do some things differently. That was her attempt at the upside. Rachel, you've written about this in your column in The Times this week, and you, you point out we are in a slightly strange position of having a government and a prime minister implementing something which deep down they probably don't think is a terribly good idea. I think it's really fascinating. You've got a Prime Minister who's doing something that she thinks is going to make the country poorer and less safe and is ultimately not in the national interest, but she feels it's her duty to do it. And the same, the Chancellor and the Home Secretary both voted for Remain and they're now having to implement a Brexit that I think in their hearts of hearts they don't really think is the right thing to do in terms of the economics or the security. There's a separate issue about whether the referendum result has to be honoured. Uh, which I think to some extent it does. But the problem is they're caught between different definitions of what's the right thing to do. And especially for Theresa May, who's this kind of dutiful vicar's daughter, desperate to do the moral thing, I think you can see it in her eyes and her awkward smile. She doesn't really know, she doesn't really feel committed to this absolutely monumental change she's forcing through and leading the country to. You saw it last week after the speech. She was asked by a German journalist, do you think it's going to be worth it? Is Brexit going to be worth it? And she couldn't say yes. She said, well, you know, the British people voted for it and it's the duty of politicians to <laughs> implement fault, it. Gov. I know. Yeah. And you, I, I just think there's a... I've spoken to very, lots of several ministers who say, look, we know this isn't in the national interest, but what else can we do? If we don't do it, we'll split the Tory party and, and also the voters will get cross. But I think um, there's now... I, really fascinatingly talking to people yesterday, I think there's a growing feeling... Um, on the backbenches, but also among some ministers, that maybe there needs to be some space created by extending the process of Article 50 or somehow give a, cent a time for a genuinely meaningful vote to happen on what Brexit means. And also, possibly, whether you could have a, another referendum or a referendum on the final deal so that people can look at the real actual reality of Brexit and say, do we want this or do we actually want to stay where we are? Matt, it is a slightly odd situation. Normally, when you know, prime ministers have done controversial and unpopular things before, but normally they thought at the time it was the right yeah, thing to do. As a playwright, I've got no idea what you're on about. <laughs> <laughs> but to Tony Blair, when he made the decision to be yeah. made of arc, thought that that was a good idea Absolutely, and it yeah. was the right thing to do, and would still argue, still does now argue in slightly contorted ways that yes. deep down it was the right thing to do. But to, to, to have the person in the middle of it right now not totally convinced of the right thing to do is a, a bit weird. There's a perversion about it, and it actually, I think makes me question what are politicians for? What is actually the role of a politician? Is a politician there simply to enact the will of the people? Or is a politician there to sometimes change people's minds? And obviously at various points it's it's a mixture of both or it's one more than the other. But there is something bizarre about a Prime Minister delivering something, the, the biggest decision in our country's, you know, since the Second World War, that they disagree with. And this whole point of a second referendum, I voted for Remain and I think Brexit's a disaster. But I think if you were to rerun the referendum tomorrow, we'd probably lose it again, which is why I think that crucial distinction of having a vote on the final deal actually is a more winnable referendum for those of us on the Remain side who think it's a disaster and most of the evidence suggests that it is. But what happens then? So you, ha you have a vote on a deal. Say the deal is rejected. What happens then? 
Well, that's it. At least then, <laughs> well, you at least buy yourself some time. Yeah. You at least then have some sort this of... means more talking about You have at least a mandate for a pause or for something else. You at least then are, are adding to the doubt around the whole thing. Equally, having a second referendum or another referendum, or however you frame it, isn't risk-free, not just in terms of the outcome, but in terms of public response to it. And I think it's very easy for us, for those of us that are obsessed with politics to often take the emotion out of it and just say, well, it's, it's going to be a mistake, so why don't we change our mind? People feel very differently out there. And there are parts of Britain that are still miles behind London. I mean, parts of London that are miles behind other parts of London. There is a genuine anger out there that if you offend or if you don't handle that effectively, you will have civil unrest. You will have that on the street. So us Remainers shouldn't pretend that this is all very simple and you just have another referendum, we win it, and then this, you know, this U-turn happens and everything's fine. It's frankly a bit of a disaster whatever happens now. I think we we dramatically overstate the enthusiasm to talk about Brexit on both yeah, yeah, sides yeah. of the argument. <laughs> um, I mean, when I was, I spent most of the general election uh, on the campaign trail, uh, following various candidates around, and I was very struck in all different parts of the country, be it Vauxhall, where the Lib Dems were trying to sort of lead a Remain charge against Kate Hoey, or, or Middlesbrough, where the Tories were trying to take uh, traditional Labour voters uh, who'd voted for Brexit. Uh, no one cared. I mean, this was basically a year on from the referendum. We're now getting on for two years on from the referendum. And you'd ask people about Brexit and they'd basically say, oh, yeah, we did that last year. So yeah. I think any sort of argument for a second referendum, which is based on the idea that developments which have happened in Westminster since the first referendum uh, have clarified or muddied or whatever that has militated uh, the arguments for a second referendum, I think just just fails a basic interest test. Um, I mean, the, 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 the second point I just make, I, I totally agree with Rachel. I mean, it's palpable um, that Theresa May doesn't believe uh, or doesn't believe this to the extent which you'd hope a prime minister does when they're enacting the biggest constitutional shake-up in however long. I just think the answer, funnily enough, was there in July 2016. And as mad as this sounds, it was Andrea Leadsom. Um, the Tory MPs who said that they needed a Brexiter to be Prime Minister were scoffed at at the time because Theresa May was the grown-up in the race. But they were right. Uh, it is ludicrous to have a Prime Minister who talks the language of a pretty narrow subset of Tory MPs, because it was a pretty narrow subset of Tory MPs, Bill Cash and whoever, who've been ploughing this furrow for years, decades who talks that language, but in their head knows it's nonsense. Whereas at least if you had someone who believed it, uh, people could sort of call them nonsense in, call out their nonsense in a sort of honest way. So it's all your fault, Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) This happens every time you come on. You end up being reminded of your your morning in a Costa Coffee in Milton Keynes, where you um, grilled Andrew Leadsom. I mean, whether or not it is Andrew Leadsom, there does seem to be this feeling that if we had a Prime Minister who did believe in it, I mean, quite apart from just being a bit more upbeat about it Mm -hmm. and saying... You know, when Boris Johnson tried this a couple of weeks ago in his policy exchange speech, and the slight problem is that half the country is completely turned off from listening to Boris Johnson, but his message of there are positives to this just isn't being made enough. I, I actually want a Prime Minister who puts the national interest first, not the party interest or their own career or ambition or whatever, that actually thinks what is right for the country. And let's look at the facts. The government's had its economic analysis um, you know, that's dim- dismissed by experts, by the purists on the Brexit side. But I think you can't ignore it. And I thought that was why the intervention by John Major and Tony Blair in what looked like a coordinated um, set of speeches last week was so interesting because there was sort of these former prime ministers have a role as a, almost like father of the nation 
and with an objectivity they're not tied into the tribalism of of the day-to-day politics and they were able to say i thought john major put it very well he said oh, yes of course the will of the people um has to be respected but on the other hand parliament also has to protect the well-being of the people and actually whether or not people are bored by it or whatever i'm sure is true now but they're not they're going to be pretty fed up if in 10 years time you know, there are fewer jobs around, they're feeling poorer, inequality's gone up because no doubt the city and the super rich will carry on getting richer. Um, and Brexit has had all these dire consequences. So Although it's it not might, that it you might want... Not. The, the counter well, argument is it, it might not. In, in if, fact, if, the, so, the, the most likely outcome is probably that nothing dramatic happens and we just never really know what would have happened what in this parallel, happened, parallel yeah. universe. There is a problem though, you're right, I think Henry's right in that the Theresa May is now in the sort of halfway house, it's like this Schrodinger's Brexit, it's sort yeah, of both yeah. dead and alive at the same time where she's <laughs> trying to pretend she's doing it but actually trying to minimise absolutely everything. So you're not going to get the potential benefits. Yeah, you end but, up with neither, and you, neither and option. Nor are you having the protections of staying in. So it's a kind of halfway house which is the worst of all worlds just to bring it back to the speech i mean she basically made this explicit um i mean the whole speech uh seven thousand words was was a sort of contorted way of arguing for the softest brexit possible within the very hard parameters which she maybe or maybe accidentally uh set out (laughs) uh, well exactly uh which she might not have appreciated the full consequences of when she uh, set them out uh, in her first party conference speech as leader. So a really good example of this, and, and apologies, I know that the Red Box podcast is meant to be a safe space, but I'm going to use the word <laughs> divergence, which actually isn't a word that Theresa May used in her speech, because even she knows uh, that it's not something that the kind of limited pool of people who would have watched that speech live uh, want to hear. But uh, she made the point that uh, as long as she is prime minister, uh, the government will not, in pretty much every area, diverge from EU regulations. That means British laws uh, and specifically regulations covering all sorts of important sectors for the economy will be the same as the EU's. But she then admitted that she could not bind future governments, future prime ministers, I think she said future parliaments, hands. So basically she said uh, to the EU, here's my assurance, we're going to be good, well-behaved, basically rule takers, Norway-style rule takers, for as long as I'm prime minister you know, with a sort of quiet subtext that no prime minister after me will be mad enough to diverge. But for the EU to believe that British governments will just follow Theresa May's assurance for decades, I mean, how many times have they been burned by British politics in the last few years? I mean, it, it would be mad for the EU to simply take Theresa May's assurance. I mean, And also, I don't understand how that's supposed to be taking back control, because presumably we're losing sovereignty, because meanwhile the EU is going to change those rules, sure. and we're going to have to keep shadowing and mirroring, but without having any say... But we're going to have the power stage, not to shadow or mirror. We are. We have, we we have a sovereign but, but power to power decide to copy We have the, the power to shoot ourselves in the foot it isn't really power just before we move on henry um as you're here and you're the uh, one of the co-authors of the hugely popular brexit briefing email the times does just talk us through very quickly what, what what are the key points the dates when can we tune in and out of brexit sort of pay attention to what's going on okay so so weirdly though theresa may was talking about the future relationship the future trade deal this week uh, this month is actually all about transition so the key thing that the uk and the eu need to sign up to uh, in a fortnight the, there's a european council summit march 22nd march 23rd is the terms of the uk's roughly two-year transitional phase or implementation period as the government likes to call it then after that we enter into a period of negotiations on trade uh, at some point later this week maybe next week the eu is going to set out its detailed detailed negotiating position on a trade agreement as that's basically their response to Theresa May's speech or their equivalent of Theresa May's speech and then you have until October 
for them to come to some sort of accommodation. That's Michel Barnier's deadline for a withdrawal treaty to be agreed. Now, you think we all agreed that last December. No. Remember, Northern Ireland was fudged. Is this clear? Uh, Northern, Northern Ireland was fudged because the British government says that Northern Ireland could only be solved taking into account what they negotiate over the future trade agreement. So though those talks will rumble on into the transition, uh, October is the key deadline when we'll basically know uh, do the does the UK have something it can put before the Commons? And then there's the separate and entirely uh, vexed in and of itself question about what the Commons will do and the Lords will do. And does the EU have something it can put before the European Parliament? So, so, so a couple more weeks and then we can tune out till October. Uh, uh, tune out, <laughs> except for on Thursday early afternoons when the Times Brexit briefing lands. <laughs> and you get, uh, Times subscribers can sign up to that. You go to home.thetimes.co.uk forward slash my news. That's home.thetimes.co.uk forward slash my news, where you can click and subscribe to both the Brexit briefing and Red Box. Uh, so uh, all plugs there. Right, uh, let's move on. I assume we'll have to come back to Brexit at some point, but let's move on. This is Rachel Sylvester. The election for the Labour General Secretary shows the left-wing takeover of the party is complete. It's unite versus momentum, with not a moderate anywhere to be seen. The bitterness of the fight shows the factions are turning on each other. It's the narcissism of small differences as the left eats itself and the voters are ignored. Now, Rachel, if we thought Brexit was complicated, trying to get your head around (laughs) the internal factions of the Labour Party is quite something. I thought that unite and momentum were all on... All on the same side. Well, I know. It's the Corbynistas versus Corbynistas. It is. And that's what's so fascinating. So it's sort of a bit like Monty Python, People's Popular Front of Judea, whatever it is, versus the Popular Front of the People's Judea. And it's there, there are these different factions. And it's partly the difference between Unite, the trade union, top-down organisation represented by Jenny Formby. I'm not going to bore you with too many names <laughs> and details. But versus John Lansman, the leader of Momentum, which is the grassroots popular you know uh on the ground movement um and so this is the group this is the sort of grassroots Corbynista separate group which basically propelled jeremy group. corbyn to being exactly. labor, labor leader so if you think of it as sort of top-down left-wingers versus grassroots left-wingers and within that it's a bit like there was you know we, everyone thought there were huge rows between tony blair and gordon brown in fact they were dancing on the head of the pin really when you compare say the difference between either of them and jeremy corbyn on the economy and tax and spending and foreign policy, actually. So there's a kind of... And actually, although they try to dress up sometimes as policy differences, a lot of it's personality and ego, and that's slightly what yep. we're seeing in yep. you know, who who does control the new left of the Labour Party. But is I it think the there, unions are, or there is a difference of approach about, do you is it about um, sort of local democracy, if you like, with the momentum, um, and that they are very in favour of um, mandatory reselection of MPs um, so that local parties can vote who they want as their candidate or is it the big trade union block vote approach um which is a more you know um mechanical if you like it's sort of top down but also i think within that there's a sort of bitterness of the fight is really revealing and i think on the left there's a there's a means justify the the ends justify the means aspect to it that unleashes these forces of hell of nastiness and bitterness um you saw it in the attacks on claire cober the leader of haringey council i interviewed her recently and she was talking about how some of these momentum activists were standing in the public gallery during council meetings um singing the police song every breath you take which basically which is about stalking so they were saying we're going to come and get you if you don't resign and it's just um appalling misogynistic bullying actually um 
So it, it and it's also the idea that there's total domination of the left now. So there's no moderate candidate who would um, think of standing for this or even want to or have a chance of of um, winning. So the left have taken over the NEC, the shadow cabinet, uh, the leadership. The only place and a lot of councils, the only place where they don't dominate is in the actual parliamentary Labour Party because most of the MPs are on the other side of the argument. What do you make of this, Matt? Uh, uh, Labour leader seizing control of the machine and then forcing out all dissenters? It would never have happened in your day, would it? I mean, there's always a bit of this. So, you know, moderates or Blairites or whatever you want to call us can't pretend that when Tony Blair became leader he didn't bring in people that he wanted and that people fell out of favour. That happens in politics and I think in a way it should to an extent. But I can't ever remember, even when I worked for the party... A competition for the general secretary's job being played out like this. You know, usually it was just done behind closed doors. It was quite private. There was usually a union candidate. There was someone the leadership wanted, and often there'd be a compromise. But you've got Labour MPs campaigning for who they want to win this. You've got people out there saying that they should be elected by the party membership. I think a lot of people don't appreciate what the role of the general secretary is. Part of the problem with the factionalism is whenever you have a court, left or right or centre, people want power in reward for their loyalty. Unite make a compelling case that they effectively fund the Labour Party, have done for a long time, have a lot of constitutional power, they feel that they should have a large say, momentum, and they fascinate momentum because they are a grassroots movement, but actually there is still basically a loyalty to the the centre of that organisation that when momentum says vote this way, its members do exactly what it says. So it might be grassroots, but it is still a well-drilled machine, and you saw that in terms of the NEC elections, and you see it in the way that they behave on other campaigns. They send a message out, and it is accepted with complete loyalty. And this is part of the problem, is that a lot of the good stuff that's come out of Momentum and, and, and out of Corbyn is that it's got people into politics, it's informing a lot of people. But when people are informed purely through factionalism, when people choose opinion first and then fact second... I fear that all you're doing actually is reinforcing a lot of ignorance. So people might feel that they're a little bit more informed about politics now, but actually they're not listening to the other side. They're not engaging with other ideas. And in the end, there is a price to be paid for that. And if I think the price in the end is actually the public aren't tuning into any of this stuff at the moment. Do they tune in if Corbyn becomes Prime Minister and then it becomes more pertinent? Or do the public start giving more of a shit about this stuff prior to a general election and it actually starts to hurt the Labour Party. I mean, just just one point on this. I, I, I do think we're perhaps overstating the extent to which this split is new. Uh, mm. There's always been a split uh, on the, the left, the hard left, the far left of the Labour Party between uh, sort of radical Democrats, as they would see it, Benites, as, as you might want to call them, uh, and, and John Landsman is avowedly a Benite, uh, learned his politics from Tony Benn, and sort of hard left uh, centralists. Uh, which, you know, perhaps has more uh, to do with uh, the traditions of some other countries. Uh, and, um, <laughs> and, um, and, and, and I think what's new here is just that it matters for the first time. Uh, you know, when John Landsman and uh, Jenny Formby were both in the wilderness, although, as Matt points out, Unite's funded the Labour Party for a long time, so Unite has long been a bit more influential. But when, when this wing of the Labour Party was irrelevant, it was doubly irrelevant what splits they had amongst them. But now that they run the Labour Party, uh, it does matter. I mean, it's basically a sign, as, as Rachel said, of how the left's takeover of the Labour Party is complete. And I think whichever candidate wins, and it's probably going to be Jenny Formby, irreversible. Uh, because uh, we are now in a position where, uh, and these aren't necessarily small differences, but the differences in approach between uh, uh, different parts of, of the far left are what we are discussing in the context of, difference of uh, differences of approach in the Labour Party. And that's really what this means. 
There's one other really interesting thing, I think, is that momentum is a really um, complicated mixture of idealistic young people who are attracted to a sort of new, what they feel is a new sort of politics and the possibility of real change. So more equality, um, more kind of power to people. Uh, And then there's, uh, alongside that, there's these kind of old Benite organisers who are much more in the kind of old-fashioned top-down nasty politics mould with quite a lot of misogyny and anti-Semitism thrown in there actually and it's that some people characterise it as sort of John Lennon singing Imagine versus the Leninists you know (laughs) mean and nasty so it's that kind of Lennon versus Lenin split is going to potentially affect what happens to Jeremy Corbyn Um, Just very quickly let's just touch on this um, extraordinary story of Munro Bergdorf the uh, trans model sacked by L'Oreal for posting things on social media which appear to be racist and homophobic, hired by the Labour Party to advise them on equalities. More and more stuff came out about things that she'd said before, including in the Times of the Weekend. She's now just resigned. This strikes me as an absolutely mad story which shows one of the problems the Labour Party has. I'll start with you, Matt. I mean, the thing I can't get my head around is normally somebody unknown is hired into a job and it comes out afterwards that they've said some mad stuff online. That was sort of why she was hired. I think you've got to be really careful to not judge people on their online past and to, to forgive people and let people move on and to get a broader range of people into politics. So I get all those pressures and all those very noble desires. But if you are standing to be the future government, you have to be highly professional in the people that you're hiring. And it just it shows a real lack of judgment to, to employ someone that's so recently said those things that, that are so severe... It's the same with the General Secretary route. The way people run the party is the way that they will run the country. And these sort of decisions will affect the sorts of people that are brought in to run government departments and the way in which the civil service is run and the way in which Downing Street is run. Now, do the public care as much as I do? Absolutely not. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. And it just it slightly worries me that if we, if we are going to have Corbyn in Downing Street, that a lot of good will, will come of it. But equally, this is the sort of stuff that really worries me. There's Rachel? a kind of hierarchy of victimhood on the left, I think, where... I don't want to say this in the wrong way, but sort of transgender is more important than f- f- women, gay. No, or I wrote, I wrote this in my you column on Saturday. I said, Trumps, I said, in, in the Labour top Trumps, being mm. trans Trumps being racist, and th- yeah. you know that they felt that that bringing in a trans model was was more worthy to the mm. Labour cause than necessarily what she'd she'd said in the past. Well, and the, and and that's a wider point that the I think for some on the left, the battle over. Um, equality and class is more important than feminism so people like Harriet Harman and the the sort of feminists in the party are sidelined they're seen as almost um, fighting an irrelevant battle and and similarly um, that's what's used to justify anti-semitism or turn a blind eye to anti-semitism somehow it doesn't seem as important as other forms of racism and then the bigger picture, I suppose, is this all seems so irrelevant to most people. You know, leaving aside the differences on the left or whatever, most people are worried about, are they going to have a job? Can their children go to a good school? Are the hospitals working? Are the trains running? They don't care about whether trans people can be on the all-women shortlist or whatever it is. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and nor do they, I suspect, think, well, I wasn't sure about that Jeremy Corbyn, but now he's hired that <laughs> model that L'Oreal sacked. Yeah. I'm right on no. board. In a second, we'll talk to Matt Ford about PMQs, but we'll be back after this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome back to the Times Web Box podcast. I'm joined by Henry Zeffman, Rachel Sylvester, and this is Matt Ford. There are certain rules... If I'd have known you had a beard, I wouldn't have put this in. There are certain rules in life that are seen as universal, things on which we all agree. You can't trust men with beards. Apart from Henry Zeffman. Apart from Henry Zeffman. Celevi <laughs> by Bewitched is the greatest pop song of all time, and the public hate Prime Minister's questions. I love PMQs. Well, I used to. PMQs is now dreadful to watch. The equivalent of a boring nil-nil played out on a wet Tuesday night. Bring back Yabu, Punch and Judy Politics. So we'll overlook the beard issue, because Henry's got a beard, <laughs> Alex, our producer, has got a beard. I'm sorry. Um, and I'm sure you don't include Jeremy Corbyn, either, in your suggestion that you can't trust him. Um, so let's focus on PMQs. And you are absolutely right. I've been sitting and watching it in the press gallery for about 12 years, and I don't think it's ever been so rubbish. It's got progressively worse. So Blair Hague, for, in my life, really was, was the highlight. That was the, that was the zenith of, of what PMQs could be. Gordon Brown then sort of chipped away at some of the joy. Brown Cameron wasn't great, but it was good enough. Cameron was really good at it, so it didn't matter who he was against. There was always a bit, you know, Miliband was kind of comical in a way. Cameron Corbyn was too one-sided, and now this. You've got two people who don't enjoy it at all and aren't good at it. And as much as I love it as a piece of entertainment, it is a vital part of a vibrant democracy to have the leader, of the, the elected leader of the country face not just scrutiny, but quite raucous scrutiny, and actually, I don't agree that the public hate it. And I, I hate it when politicians say, oh, it's rubbish, and then they go in there and, and join in with it. It's the only bit of Parliament that the public ever vaguely tune into. The rest of the parliamentary week is as dull as people want it to be. So when people say PMQ should be more reasoned, the rest of the week is like that, and no one watches it. <laughs> don't let them ruin that one bit. The sad truth is, actually, this is being ru- ruined by two individuals in particular, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, who don't engage with it. I mean, Theresa May, Prime Minister's are often accused of not answering questions and it's a line she's used before Jeremy Corbyn doesn't even ask them Ed Ed Miliband went through a period where he would just make a point rather than asking a question because they get sucked into the the tete-a-tete of it rather than actually thinking of how to use it and when you I mean Haig was one of the greatest he would set traps for weeks ahead so he would I remember him once and I think he's written about it in his Telegraph column he said he would ask a question on a week where there'd be no scandal 
So it'd just come out of a clear blue sky and he'd get up and say, um, Will the Prime Minister guarantee that if any member of his cabinet breaks the ministerial code, they will be fired immediately? And of course, there'd be no scandal. <laughs> so Blair would just go over the top and say, Well, of course, he's right. If anyone has breached the code, they didn't bring evidence and we will deal with it. <laughs> and then he, he would just save that in a box until someone had. And like a year later, Haig would be able to get up and say, The Prime Minister on the 27th of June made a solemn vow to the country. And it was a great, he was, it, it made it, firstly, that's a really good way to hold someone to account keep a government on its toes and secondly obviously it is great entertainment and it PMQ to me is a great fusion of the very best bits of parliamentary democracy it's raucous it's funny it's entertaining it's a personal battle and it's underpinned by that valuable scrutiny in a public realm and for me I'm heartbroken at the moment because it is currently dreadful when when it was Cameron and Miliband or Brown you'd sort of go oh that's the clip they want for the telly Ah, yeah. but now it's social media. But now, but they don't even do that. You're not even aware. You're right. And until you have particularly Jeremy Corbyn, all he's doing is just preaching to his Twitter followers. Well, who'd you say the Tories don't care about you know the unemployed and the Prime Minister doesn't care about the country and that will get clipped up and that goes online. It doesn't matter that the question was awful. It doesn't matter that it wasn't a question. And actually, in a way, he's at least he's making it work for him. So at least he's got an At least he's got a sort of view of. This has got a life beyond the four walls of the chamber, but as a as now a piece of drama, that, as now a piece of scrutiny. But it's just turning into PR for Jeremy Corbyn rather than holding the, the prime minister account. What do you yeah. ma- what do you make of it, Rachel? Well, it's a test of leadership, isn't it? And the mm. two leaders are both hopeless, so <laughs> no wonder it's a disaster. Um, you know, and it's for different reasons. Jeremy Corbyn at one point subcontracted the questions, didn't he, to members That's of right. the public? It was crowdsourced you know, Doreen from. Derby, Derby or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, would, ask, would set the questions and then he'd ask them of the Prime Minister. But Matt's absolutely right. It's a crucial way for the Prime Minister to be held to account. The other thing I think is interesting is the dynamic between those two leaders and their backbenchers. So the one purpose, of, well, one of the purposes of PMQs is for Prime Ministers and leaders of the opposition to sort of set the political tone at Westminster. But in this case, you've got two leaders, neither of whom are respected by the MPs sitting behind yeah. them. So they're, it's normally they're kind of trying to rally their troops. But in this case, Theresa May, half her troops or more, actually want to get rid of her as leader. And Jeremy Corbyn, majority of his, have tried to get rid of him <laughs> as leader. So it's a kind of weird atmosphere. You, and as a result, the, the atmosphere is weird. The, mm. the noise isn't what it was. Both of them can sit down at times, this sort of... <laughs> you're not even quite sure which side that's come from. Yeah. Is that sort of... There used the to be op- a frisson. You talk to Cameron or one of the... They, they would talk about a wall of noise as mm. you stood up. And there'd be a frisson to that. And that's, um, that's, not, that's not the same. What do you make of any? Does this really matter? Is it not just polit- political wonks like us? No, I agree. I agree entirely with Matt that it, it is the only bit of the parliamentary calendar that, that does matter. Um, can I throw a third culprit into the mix uh, for the decline of PMQs? Uh, John Burko. No. Uh, for, t- for two reasons. One is that men I with think- beards. <laughs> I didn't realise this was a meeting of Burko Ultras. Um, uh, for two reasons. One is one is that. Uh, he is responsible for policing the exchanges between the two leaders. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn's questions, or questions such as they are, are partly rubbish because they go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And it takes him two and a half minutes to get to a point. And by the time he's got to the sort of inflection which represents a question <laughs> mark, um, <laughs> Theresa May has quite understandably 
forgotten what the question started off as being. Uh, the second point, and it's related, is time in general. PMQs last forever. <laughs> I mean, it goes on, and this is partly my complaint because I have to sit through it and the, the signal is rubbish, so I can't even scroll Twitter. I actually have to listen to this. Um, occasional wisecracks from Matt in my ear. The backbenchers element of it is important, and, and to, to John Burko's credit, uh, that is the major development of his nine years of Speaker of the Commons, is that backbenchers are far more important, have far more of a say in urgent questions and uh, calling ministers to account and all of that, and that's great. But he should extend that responsibility to policing nonsense questions from, you know, MPs who you've never heard of from somewhere talking about a youth centre or not even that, a youth centre <laughs> important, a garden centre. You know, would the Prime Minister join me in congratulating, you know, Wenlock Garden Centre on his great tulip crop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Theresa May will say, yes, yes, I do. And by the way, you know, we're going to make Brexit a success. And it's just <laughs> ultifyingly dull. You know, if we could cut that out, and sharpen Corbyn's questions and May's answers, for that matter, up. The whole thing could be over in 30 minutes, and at least then it would be short and rubbish rather than long Do you think, conversely, select committees have got more important? Mm, yes, so absolutely. Sounds boring, yeah. But yeah. The, the, they are really now holding departments to account, and they're challenging elites, whether that's business, ministers, the prime minister, and they are really working. It's partly because they're elected now, the chairs, aren't they? But I also think on, on, big, on the big issues of the day, and Brexit being the most obvious one, David Davis can get through Brexit questions in the Commons just by getting up and saying, oh, cheer up, it's all going to be all right, and sitting down again and another question, yeah. cheer up, it's all going to be all right. But the Whereas select committee, the select committee really can't is, do that. Yeah, he can, yes. you know, and actually, he's got in, the big pickles he's got in have been during select committee hearings where he's sort of said that some impact assessments existed and they didn't and they were very detailed, but actually they... Excruciating detail yeah. was the phrase. But, but then they didn't exist at all. <laughs> no, no, just excruciating. But the select no, committee which struggles to hold its minister, its relevant minister to account is the liaison committee, which is yeah. the committee of yeah. chairmen and chairwomen of other select committees, uh, which gets to talk to the Prime Minister three or four times a year. And that is just a terrible form for scrutinising the Prime Minister because, as we all know, the best way of doing it is having a leader of the opposition who asks short, sharp, precise questions, uh, six of them, once a week, and the problem is it doesn't happen. Well, I think we've sorted everything out there. We've solved Brexit, we've sorted out the Labour <laughs> Party, and we've come up with a plan for rescuing PMQs. Uh, that's all we've got time for this week, I think. Uh, remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on your Android device, and sign up to my daily morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox, and sign up to the Brexit briefing at home.thetimes.co.uk forward slash my news. Before we go, Matt, you've got a couple more episodes left of Unspun on Dave. When's it on? That's right. Every Sunday at 10... Okay, I almost forgot. Sunday's at 10 on Dave. Up to the minute political comedy. And it is very good. I went and saw it being recorded the other night. Uh, but for now, from Rachel Sylvester, Henry Zeffman, Matt Ford and me, Matt Chollett, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. 
This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.